0: well here we are it's episode three and i have a great guest for us to talk to today his name is pastor john pavlovitz he's a writer a pastor and an activist from wake forest north carolina he's a 25 year veteran in the trenches of the local church and uh you just gotta meet this guy he's committed to equality diversity and justice both inside and outside of faith communities and we get into it in this conversation i first found out about him from his blog stuff that needs to be said and uh, he was so gracious to sit down with me as he was releasing his new book if god is love don't be a jerk without further ado let's welcome pastor john pavlovitz All right. So number one, I got to thank you for joining me on the podcast today. I ran across your blog first and okay. I was like, this guy, I mean, the title of your blog literally is exactly how I feel. it's like stuff that <laughs> needs to be said. Okay. So uh, you got to walk me through what was the
1: inspiration behind saying the stuff that needs to be said? Well, you know, as the blog was just beginning, I was a pastor in a local church. We were part of a mega church there. And I was just writing for, it was an insider sort of uh, blog for parents of teenagers, for other youth pastors who were sort of looking at our church as a model, right? And what I was finding out was that I was... Softening my language because of the nature of the of the position that i there were things that I really wanted to say, but I knew I couldn't go all the way there. I could kind of tiptoe up to it, I could uh, talk around things, and I started to realize that I needed to speak with specificity, and there were some things that happened in our country, well, one of them was the Sandy Hook shooting. I remember the day that happened, hmm. I was sort of writing from a really visceral place um, at the time. I remember there were some conservative pastors and politicians were sort of leveraging that moment in a way that I thought was really damaging. And I wasn't thinking about my job as I was typing away and I put that blog out and it reached a whole new audience. And I realized there was a responsibility I had to speak clearly into issues of sexuality, race, gun violence, immigration, all these things. So I knew I was probably going to be an authentic pastor or an employed pastor at this particular church. And <laughs> so I pre- proceeded to see if I could write myself out of a job.
0: <laughs> yes. So, I mean, let's, let's just explore that for a second. You say, hey, I'm either going to be an authentic pastor or I'm going to be an employed pastor based on where you are right now. I think mm-hmm. lots of people might find themselves at a spot where maybe their uh what's authentic to them and their convictions and what aligns with their mm-hmm. uh just their outlook where they feel like God has assigned them to do doesn't match with their vocation even if it happens to be in church. What do you say to those people because that's like instant identity thing it's Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people, whether you've gone to seminary or whether you've been in church all your life or whether you've just decided to just, you know, give your life to the call. It's like, Hey, like, this is a big part of who I am. Right. How
1: do I navigate this space? Well, and Mark, it isn't even just, you know, vocational Christians or professional Christians or ministry people. What I found was, as I started to express myself more clearly, that the pew sitters, the civilians in the church were saying, okay, that's me. The writing has given me permission to ask some questions that I didn't think I could ask or speak into things I didn't think I could speak into, because there is a, what I call a conspiracy of pretending in church communities where you can be honest but you know that you can't be completely honest because there will be things that might push you to the periphery of the community and that that need for community is so strong and then the identity that you get as a person of faith in that context is so powerful that often you'll do anything to stay in there. And so that's what I found it was also just normal people saying, "Wow, I can sort of exhale and begin to explore these things and feel that it's okay."
0: Mm. So, obviously, you've reached a whole new audience of people. I mean, I'm just, you know, a random person in Denver, Colorado, you know, just stumbling upon your blog one day. Um, What weight and responsibility do you have, especially for uh, people who might not be churched, but um, they've got a little baggage around church, they're Mm -hmm. apprehensive around church or just faith in general, How do you reconcile having these honest conversations that are directed toward the faith community, but then also you're still a pastor? So Mm. it's like that evangelism
1: aspect will never go away. That's right. And I I tell people all the time, if you're honest in doing this work or just as a person of faith, morality and conscience, I'm always fighting with and for my faith tradition. So there are things about it that I I love, there are beautiful things that I have been a part of. I've had a front row seat to just amazing things. So I want to hold on to those things and I want other people to experience that. But I also know the toxicity associated with the institutional church and the baggage that is attached. And so I'm always trying to jettison what is unhealthy and hold on to what is redemptive. And that could look a million different ways mm. for people. And so I never want people to feel like they have to agree with me theologically or politically. It's about moving people from where they are to a more honest place. And um, that means confronting some really ugly realities, especially for myself. As a cisgender white guy, I had to realize, okay, this thing that I'm a part of has been doing so much damage that I need to reckon with that and the ways that I've benefited from that system. And there's a grieving that comes with that. And a lot of people don't want to do that work. So I'm always asking the church, especially people who might look like me, to to do that work, have that existential crisis, mm-hmm. have that struggle.
0: Mm. Do you find that it's a hard conversation? Because I wanna say, like in my experience from, I've been in pretty much like, I would say multicultural or uh, multi-ethnic environments, depending on mm-hmm. uh, how embracing certain environments are um, for, I mean, the majority of my life, like since college. And I find that for as much progress that I think we've made, mm. there's always like this this moment where you're like, oh, we're here. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so I wonder what it's I, I just want to know, like sitting at a table with somebody who looks like you, like, mm. what is that conversation like when you're breaking down that struggle? Because just like how we talked about identity earlier, I think a huge part of this conversation is the identity that comes with, you know, being conservative, being a Christian, and all the things that come along with it that are definitely more cultural than Christ. Right. But I'm sure the conversation has to be interesting if you're talking to, especially, a friend that knows you and you know them and you know the, 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 the unfiltered comments that might happen and come across like, what is that
1: conversation like? It usually goes better interpersonally than it does in a more collective way, like online, right? It's usually far less, um, always, you know, bombastic (laughs) and, you know, so that's, there's that part of it. But I think I had to realize when I'm engaging a lot of these people, I understand the story that they're coming out of. I understand the theology that they're steeped in. Uh, I know the narrative in their heads and I know what they're taught. They're supposed to believe and how they're supposed to vote. So I represent the, you know, I represent a danger. I'm the backslider. I'm the heretic that they always heard about. And so I realize Mm -hmm. that there's a defense posture that they're going to have toward me or anything that I'm saying. So, so there comes a responsibility to speak clearly, but to have as much um, mercy as I can To realize that they're still in the story so they can't really see the flaws in it uh, very well Mm -hmm. and because to see them would be this whole house of cards has to uh has to fall apart and um you know i'll say that organized religion and organized crime are very similar you know when you're in the family you're really loved fiercely and then the moment you step outside of that you know your concrete shoes right and so you've got to be really careful the ferocity of that community that is beautiful also gets flipped. And so when I began writing all this stuff and saying it, members of my old communities now see me as the enemy. And that's the sad part. That minute you ask questions, those questions are threatening.
0: Mm. You've just walked through, I mean, I was just on your blog earlier this week, just reading about your experience in the hospital. Yeah, I wonder the work that you feel called to now, like on this side of a surgery that could have almost taken your life. Mm. Something that hit me with the the last thing you wrote on your blog was uh, most of the stuff that we uh, feel like we're, are important to us in terms of our work, we don't even think about it when we're thinking that we're yeah. dying. How has your recent experience
1: impacted your work and the stuff that you're writing? I think for me, what I'm always trying to do in this work, I, I speak a lot to ministers, caregivers, activists, parents who are really exhausted on the front lines of empathetic work of any kind. And I'm always trying to make sure that they are doing the work that they're doing in a sustainable way so that they're looking at their lives, you know, a a life of sustainable compassion, I call it. And so I think what that did, it reminded me of my own journey that I have to be a whole human being doing work that I believe in, but the work can't encompass my life. I can't do this work In detriment to my relationships. And so there's a balance that I try to get other people to have. And now I was reminded of that. But the other thing it does is it tells you that there is an urgency to this life. And so you have to use the day and time that you have in front of you as wisely as you can. So I just mm-hmm. have to keep doing what I'm doing. And then, you know, try to make sure I'm loving people close to me. To mm-hmm. you, the challenge is, Mark, I always want people, I want my Wife and my kids and my friends to go to my messages when I talk to people, so that they can say, "Yeah, he actually lives this," or "He's full of crap," right? So I want to be able to have mm-hmm. they—they are the ones who determine how authentic I really am, despite anything that I preach or say or write.
0: Mm. I want to rewind the tape to the moment that you were still a pastor may not may not be as authentic as you were uh, or as you are now. Um, because I think there are, there are times when we all have to muster up that strength to say, this is my conviction. Yep. This is what I, I strongly believe God has for me in my life. Um, but you may not have had the courage always. I want you to just describe what was the conversation like in your mind when you, if you ever second guessed that type of conviction you have now?
1: I think it, a lot of it is work that you do retrospectively. You look back and you realize, okay, I was trying to be honest, but I had—I was aware of limitations. I was not verbalizing it or internalizing it that way. Um, there were a couple of times when I realized, okay, I'm writing this message and I want to speak on something that's a really difficult topic. And I'm actually beginning to picture faces and names of people in my congregation who I know are going to be upset by this message. I know where they sit on Sundays. Mm. And I know how involved they are in the church, how vocal they're going to be. And so you begin thinking about them and writing almost to placate them. And so that is exhausting. Mm -hmm. And it's also, it's exhausting to get up in front of at the time, a couple thousand people on a Sunday and be speaking something assertively. And yet in the back of your mind saying, I'm not quite sure I believe this, but I know I'm supposed to. Mm -hmm. So it's more of an internal wrestling that it's a general discomfort because there's a duality that's there. And the more you can be one person, uh, the same person on the platform that you are in your living room, the better you are. So it was trying to bring those two people sort of together. So it was just a gradual getting exhausted of softening the words or hiding the convictions. And finally, you just say, I can't do it anymore.
0: What's up, family? We're taking a quick pause from this episode to make sure you're connected. If what you've heard so far has been helpful to you, I want you to know there's plenty more where that came from, but it's easy to miss an episode if you're not connected. So please head over to ConvoRoom.com to find out how you can subscribe and not miss a single moment. Now back to the episode. Got you. Is was there any specific conversation or fallout where you might think back and say, ah, "I wish I could have handled that better"?
1: Hmm. That's a great question. I think it, it happens all the time to varying degrees. I, when I was in this large church that we were speaking of, I was really well loved and I had relational capital. I had been there a long time, so I knew I had an equity of trust with people. And then I went to a new church. I left that church and started at a new church and thought that I had, I knew I didn't have the same equity of trust, but I sort of ignored it. So I went in all guns blazing, you know, being as straightforward as I'd always been at the previous church and not realizing they were not ready for that. They had not bought into me as a human being yet. So probably I could have kind of walked with them and built some of that trust. But at the time I'd already been speaking so clearly that I, it was hard to go back. So that, that's always going to, that was a challenge. And then I always tell people Mm. after five months, I heard God calling me to leave that church. And it came in the form of my pastor's voice saying, you're fired. And so it was in that moment that God, (laughs) like it wasn't in my quiet time. It was at a Starbucks on a Thursday afternoon where he's like, you're out. Yes. And then it was, and then it was, okay, this is the reality now, despite how I got here. So now what? And that began this whole new journey for me about seven years ago.
0: So in terms of you being an author, was that the thing that you saw as the next step for you? Or Mm -hmm. did you just kind of think, I'm just going to write organically and
1: whatever happens, happens. That was, you know, writing was not on the map at all. The only time I had written was to prepare messages for speaking. And then I was writing the blog. But again, it was still sort of just this. I saw it as just a, between me and a few people, and even though it was slowly growing, and I wrote a blog post not long after I was fired, and it went viral, and I was uh, invited to write a book, and it, I had no idea. You know, they, they this publisher called and they said we love this post, we would love for you to turn it into a book, and um, they said just give us a book proposal by this date, and I said okay, that's great, and I hung up the phone and I googled book proposal because I didn't even know what that was. And then they did this uh-huh. proposal and they passed on it because they realized that I i was I was going to be even more uh, bold than they thought, and they were just like a Christian publisher. Mm. And so all these publishers passed on it, and then finally a publisher said, we want to publish this as is. we believe in it. And I said, okay, well, let's do that. And that did so well that the ripples began of going and being invited to speak and write another book, and it's just been totally unexpected. Uh, this was nothing that I... I had no plan at all after I was fired. It was just about getting up every day, speaking as honestly as I can into the world and care for people. And that's led to the next day and the next. And here we are.
0: Mm. So what was your experience like leading up to writing this particular book that you're releasing? I'm curious as to what inspired it. Um, How'd you, how'd you get the concept, like just all the above?
1: Well, I you know, I did a book proposal for this book and it was originally called unboxing God. And it was, had some of the similar themes. It was about, you know, when you shrink God and the the effect on your life and theology and how you treat people. And, but I started writing it in March of 2020. And so this little news story about this health issue in in China, was, you know, burgeoning and then there's (laughs) some states and then it's just, (laughs) yeah. So I've got my head down every day. I'm writing, I'm paying attention and then this thing starts to grow and the news becomes more dire and more alarming. And then the summer, you know, we start seeing the the high profile murders of black people and the protests and then the counter protest. And then we have all the election stuff ramping up. And I started to look at all this and say, OK, one, I can't ignore this. It can't be just a sidebar in the book. And because that's what I've always done is speak explicitly into what's happening in real time. But I also looked at all these situations and realized most of the uh, division and most of the violence seemed to be coming from Christians, professed Christians who were white. They were the ones refusing masks, and they're the ones who were protesting against the Black Lives Matter movement. They were the ones with the incendiary rhetoric toward immigrants and all this. And so I said, I have to speak into that. And I didn't think I could write the book anymore. And I went to my publisher and they were fantastic. They said, well, what book could you write? And it became this book, If God is Love, Don't Be a Jerk. And it was my effort. It became like a real-time journal of all of this stuff through the lens of my faith. And uh, a much more visceral and much more emotional book, I think, that I would have written previously.
0: Do you feel like your assignment or life's work is to speak into the narrative and kind of interrupt the pattern? Or do you feel like your goal is to just live authentically and hope that you inspire
1: others to change. What, what you learn doing this work and anyone who speaks or writes or puts anything out in the world, any opinions, is that you're going to release these words and those words are going to do a thousand different things in a thousand different people. And so I learned long ago that I, could, I have to choose the words as carefully as I can and ask myself what I'm actually attempting to say here. Am I trying to educate or am I trying to put somebody on blast? Am I trying to you know, show them mm-hmm. a truth or an experience they haven't seen or am I trying to humiliate them? But if I have my motives in check and I put those words out as carefully as I can, I let those words do whatever they're going to do. To some people, those words are going to mm-hmm. bring comfort and they're going to say someone sees me other people are going to be threatened by those words and I'm going to have to be okay with all of those responses. So I just get up every day. I have this platform that I'm grateful for. And I say, what is, what is the wisest use of this day and these 800, 900 words? And i live with the rest. Mm-hmm. I have the, the, the mm-hmm. praise and the criticism and I just hold them loosely and just keep saying, okay, what am I intending? Where's my heart?
0: Um, I Number one, I just want to just applaud the fact that I'm. I feel like I'm. I'm looking at somebody that seems to put to a paper and put voice to so many like thoughts and feelings that Thank are you. just in the faith community, um, and it's just hard to articulate. So I, mm-hmm. I just really want to affirm Thank you for that. Um, at the same time, I can't imagine having walked through what you just walked through. So, like,
1: mm-hmm. just
0: if you don't mind sharing. What was the experience like when you realized like, okay, I'm going to have to have some surgery on my brain. Yeah. It's literally like, I mean, there's, there's probably no more intimidating thing to digest than, okay, we're going to have to operate and not just on something, but the most important faculty you have. So, um, what, what was that process like? Like, how did you, how did you get the news? Like
1: all the above. Well, the the news came slowly. And what it allowed me to do is mentally prepare for every option. So I was having symptoms, I had had COVID, I was a breakthrough case, even though I'd been fully vaccinated. And I wasn't feeling really well, after I had sort of recovered from a lot of symptoms. And doctor did some blood work. And he said, Oh, there's some hormonal stuff that's really out of whack. And it's really strange. And it might be this type of pituitary gland tumor at the base of your brain and so I, you know he said but don't be scared and So, always I, I was already scared right so he said i'm mm-hmm. gonna have you we're gonna do an mri in your brain but don't worry which i was worried so we did the mri and i knew okay it could show up that these are there and then there was a variety of things that could happen so once they found that those tumors were there it was about going back to a specialist doing more blood work and the choices were this tumor is not, we're not going to do anything about it because it's not harming anything. It's, it's benign. Um, we're going to give you meds. That was the other option to treat this, this other particular kind. And the third kind was, well, we have to do surgery because it's totally messing with your system. And unfortunately we got that news. Mm. Um, I was reassured that most likely the surgery wouldn't cost me my faculties, that maybe the Mm. uh, anesthesia would be in my brain for a while and I might be foggy. And, um, fortunately i just realized okay this is i have no choice this is the road i'm on surgery is not optional that sort of released me to say okay i'm going to invite everyone into this all my readers i'm going to talk about it and we're just going to walk through and if things go horribly wrong hey they're going to buy more books after <laughs> i said you know my wife there will be a book you <laughs> get a great book bump a death bump if i die um but it was been beautiful oh because God. people who i you see the connection that you have with your readers. And I know this virtual community is powerful, but it's been palpable to see the way they've carried me and sent letters and mm. sent encouragement. So that that gave me comfort to know, no matter what happens, I'm walking this road like every other road, openly and honestly. And so it's been fantastic. And I am glad that I'm semi-coherent on most days.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes. So you write about, on your blog. Like, I think it was like this past week, if I'm correct, or I read it this week, Okay, but um, just this incredibly intense event that happens. Mm. And the thing that got me was you talked about how, cause I guess the doctor was like, you're not supposed to have any fluids and like all this kind of stuff. And then yeah. all of a sudden you feel there are fluids and you're like, oh my God, this is blood. Yeah. Like what is going through your head at that moment? Because it inspires this awesome post where you're talking about things that you think about when you die or when you think you're going to die thank god you're yeah. still here yeah oh um, so like it's I'm, I'm just curious as to the play-by-play yes there's what's happening in the room and to get you stable and all this good mm-hmm. stuff but like what is happening in your head <laughs>
1: You know, it, things change so quickly in, in, in a moment in life. And we know this. And I was just sitting in bed. I'd ordered some dinner. My wife had been in the hospital room all day with me. And I said, you know, why don't you go home? Kids are getting home from school. And I, I was feeling a lot better. I was moved from the ICU to a regular room. So there was sort of this optimism and like we're, we're through the, the hardest part. And, you know, to put on the TV, ordered dinner. And then it was just having this like little cough and little tickle. And all of a sudden within like, 10 seconds it's just your blood is streaming out, out of your nose and everything mm. is all over the floor and you're you're coughing and gagging and your ears are filling up with fluid and you can't hear and i hit that you know call button for the nurses and it was just this panic and you had people surrounding you and what you hear yourself you hear the your voice speaking sentences that you're not controlling I'm just saying, mm. call my wife. And I kept saying, I need my kids. I need my kids. And that's where you just say you're desperate for just more time. And I think we find mm. that out in difficult moments is that that's all we have. That's what we want is more time. And then if we get that time, can we be wise with it? So ever since then, it's about, I got that time. I got to see my wife. I got to be with my kids. I got to see my friends, my family. And so, yeah, don't waste it. Mm. It's funny because I lost my sense of smell. It's been coming in and out. And I said, mm. I can, I'm, I'm stopping and smelling the roses every day, even if I can't smell them. I'm just appreciating <laughs> yes. the days, you know?
0: Yes. I've, for some reason, I feel like we have to talk to people who might be listening, who that whole, like, I just want more time resonates with. Mm. But it might be a little difficult to re-engage in relationship, because even if it's not like how we were describing earlier, like with a, a philosophical or theological disagreement that mm-hmm. you might have with someone, sometimes it's just relational. Right. And how do you live life and repair relationships that might not be the healthiest of relationships, but they're necessary? How do you get to a point where you're not in regret at the end, or if God forbid something catastrophic happens, right? um, But at the same time, you're kind of living a little guarded. You're like, I I, I need these boundaries because I feel like these boundaries help me stay grounded, stay emotionally stable. You know, what would
1: you say to those people? You know, doing this work. I mean, that is the theme over and over. As I, you know, before the pandemic, I was traveling the country, and now virtually. It's the relational fractures out of this time. People who are no longer speaking to friends or people whose marriages have crumbled or their moms over politics, theology, whatever it could be. And so it's a balance of saying, how do I try to preserve this relationship? I do what I can to do that. But at some point there becomes a, a such a toxicity to that, that maybe the distance is where I have to love those people from. And you have to create a new uh, tribe of affinity. You have to create new community. So I think that that regret you speak about or the fear of, okay, I've got this time, but I still have these profound disconnects with people. It's every relationship is so unique and it's so ebbs and flows. There are people who I'm now trying to reconcile with who maybe eight months ago, I could not, right? I was not ready for that. And there are other people that I still don't want in my life presently because proximity with them is more harmful than good. But I do have friends and other family and a new community. And so you invest in those relationships. You might be doing life with people you didn't think you would be 10 years ago. The people you thought were going to be there may not be the people who are all going to be there. And you have to be willing to be okay with that.
0: Is there specific language that you could give somebody in their back pocket when they're trying to navigate one of those conversations when they're like, Hey, proximity is a good thing. Mm. Um, I, I need to repair this relationship. If it's not beneficial for us to have fallen out over the fact that you voted for someone I didn't agree with, um, or over the fact that you have a different stance on something That I I feel is so core to who I am and what I believe. But at the end of the day, we're better together than we are apart. Yeah. What is it that you could give to say, hey, when you're sitting down with this person, this is what you need to focus on. This is, these are the questions Mm -hmm. you need to ask. This is what you can say to find inroads and find ways to repair. You may not be able to fix everything that's fractured, but this, this is what you can say.
1: I remember being in, in art school uh, years ago and I, I tell the story in one of the books where the professor was going to have us draw a still life of just ordinary objects. And he said, before we before we even started, he said, put your pencils down. And he said, I want you to come up here and get close to all this stuff. And he said, this is ordinary stuff that people no longer notice the beauty in. Your job as an artist is to show them the beauty that they're missing. And the way you do that is you have to become a student of what you draw. You have to pick it up and look at the way it reflects light and what its temperature is and whether it's smooth or rough. And then when you when you become a student of that, you can show people the beauty that they no longer see. And I think it's about being a student of other people. When you're a student of other people, you're always saying, there's more I can learn about them. I may think I know them really well, but I don't know something about them because I don't know their full story. Because if I do, it may change me. And I look for the fear and the grief underneath that story Mm. whatever people are afraid of or whatever they feel they've lost or will lose that usually tends to push them to the things that they that they believe and speak and how they vote if i look for the fear and the grief that's universal stuff and if i can see where that is maybe i can help them not to change their mind but to make them less afraid or to comfort them and if i have that posture i'm going to be a better human being
0: Mm. That's good. The fear and the grief. Wow. Um, what do you
1: find people are most afraid of? Probably of being, they're, they're afraid of being alone. So they're afraid of, you know, the movements that we have in our country. You can look at something like the sort of MAGA movement that seems from the outside to be so toxic and angry. But people, for whatever reason, found a sense of place there. And I don't know how or why, but I do know that that's the reality. And so I think everyone's afraid of not being within a community. And so they need to find that. And then the religious part of it is the toxic religion. People are terrified of going to hell or or God being angry at them. And it's amazing what you what you can do to people when you manipulate that fear. And so I think when we talk about the kind of religion that we've been talking about, there is a there is an unhealthy terror at the heart of that. Whether it's God is going to be angry at me, or I have these adversaries who are coming to take my jobs or whatever it could be.
0: Yeah. At some point you had to wrestle with this. Hearing the whole like, is God angry at me? Because I grew up very Pentecostal. Okay. And um and I think one of the indictments on the Pentecostal movement can be the whole like if then. Uh, paradox, it's like, well, if you do this, then God is gonna, you know mm-hmm. what I mean, and and so you can get to a point where you equate how good or bad your life is with your relationship with God, right? And is He pleased with you? Did you did you do all the right things? Did you did did you read your Bible? Did you did you did you give in the offering? Yes. Did you pray? Did, all, all the all the above. And I think these are subtle things, but it definitely comes back to this thing where it's like, I, I just don't want to make God angry. Mm-hmm. And I think what is so profound for me is that the moment that I had a child, it erased a lot of those, like, I mean, the I definitely got over it sooner than having a kid, but having a kid really like erased a yes. lot of the nonsense of the if then paradox, because there are days where like my daughter, I remember when she was first born, like she just, uh, she was kind of up every two hours Mm -hmm. and then she kind of had the acid reflux thing going on. So it was just like, I mean, and, and we were like new, I mean, first time parents, so we didn't know what we were doing. And there was just, well, I didn't know what I was doing. My wife (laughs) definitely kicked into high gear, but, (laughs) um, But there was this moment where it didn't matter how, like, because she's a baby, she's going to do things Mm -hmm. that babies do. And it didn't matter how upset, frustrated, whatever I was, as soon as she went to sleep, I'm like staring at this little baby. Yes. Because I'm like, I'm fascinated with this little child. And so there's no way. It's almost like the old There's no mountain high enough, no valley low enough, no river wide enough to keep me from getting to you. You know what I mean. So how? (laughs) So it's like, how in the world could I ever wrestle with the idea that if I believe what I believe, that Mm. God would send His only Son, and that He will be the firstborn of many brethren, and Mm. that I'm now an heir with Christ, and I'm adopted into the family. How in the world? could I walk around with this concept that God is mad with me? But I wonder, like, what was that like for you when you came to that realization? Like, wait a minute, God's not mad at me.
1: A lot of it was a really similar experience because I was raised with the narrative of God as father. We're the children of of God. And and so I started to think about my child, my son Noah, when he was born 16 years ago and realized it. If I were to say that he's going to reach a point where he does something where I cut him off, and or I want him to suffer, I want him to be in pain, what would that say about my character as a father? And yet, a lot of the narrative was, hey, God is out to squash you, and God is going to reach a point where God washes his, at the time, hands of you, and you're, you're done forever. And so there was something that didn't connect with that, just the love that I have for my son, as imperfect as of dad as I am. I was, I'm relentless in my love for that child, for my children. And so that began that sort of shaky understanding. And I, and I think what you talked about earlier was this thing that we try to psychoanalyze God to say, all right, this happened. So is God angry? Is God trying to tell me something? And we, we, we insert ourselves into circumstances and we try to spiritualize every circumstance. And what you can do is you can drive yourself insane uh, because uh, people would say, oh, you found this tumor because God wanted you to find this tumor That's you had COVID so you could find this tumor. Okay, if that's what you feel, great. Or they go, you know, God gave you this tumor so that you could do these things. And I said, well, I don't know why God gave you the tumor. I know two things. I have the tumor. And now I get to respond with the best of myself. So mm. I, I can't worry about what the whys of this. I only understand the what and now the how. Mm. How am I going to be? So I think when we do that, we're going to be better off. And um, I think, yeah, God for, for God to be God, God has to have a love that we can't even fathom. It's always going to out-forgive us, out-love us, out-care us.
0: Mm. What does the next chapter for you look like? I mean, yes, you've got Sleep. a book. That's uh, (laughs) one word Sleep. Uh, Uh, other than sleep. Yeah. Does that mean like, does that equal rest? Does Mm. that equal intentional Sabbath? What does that mean?
1: Yeah. Well, part of it is, I I laugh because really I've been, I started going on social media here and there. Usually I would pre-schedule posts. I'd say, Hey, here's an update on my health this morning, but everything you see is going to already be scheduled. I'm not online. And then I started to kind of creep in and do some things. And people were saying, John, you have to go and rest. And I said, really? Honestly, I'm kind of tired of sitting in this chair or lying in the bed. And I'm feeling well enough to participate in life to some degree. There's a lot of restrictions. Mm -hmm. So I I joke about sleep. But honestly, um, next for me is really I'm leaning into those ideas of grief. I mean, that's where I'm feeling led to write into that fear and grief story even more and help people with the, the losses that they have, the, the people that they've lost, right? But also the relationships that they've lost or the idea that they may have lost their understanding of God or the church or America. And so that's probably where I'll be. But for the good thing now is because of the surgery, because I have limitations on physically what I can do, I've got three or four months probably where I'm going to be here. And that's been good practice for me because as wonderful, as much as I've preached self-compassion and self-care and rest, I've been pretty terrible Mm. at it. So this has been a way for me just to say, okay, this is going to be this time now. And I'm going to, I'm trying to model wise recuperation for people.
0: Mm. So for someone who is like me, who does has a hard time practicing Sabbath, um, what would you tell them? Because it's just like, Hey, I'm I'm preaching it, and I, I know all the things, yeah. but I, I suck at it. Like, w- w- what would you say to someone like me?
1: It's a funny question, but I always say to people, "Who do you think you are?" So, do, <laughs> you know, the, one of the self care tips I give the people is know who you are So you're once in history, never to be repeated creation, and you have gifts and talents and abilities that no one has ever had or will have, but you're not. In, infinite, and you're not, um, you know, you have a shelf life and you have a capacity that gets, put, you know, maxed out. So, part of it is having the humility to say, okay, I know that I have all these gifts and talents and I want to do a lot with my time, but I am also perishable. And I have to care for this body because the goal is not me expiring early. The goal is for me to be here as long as I can to do this work. So, It's know who you aren't you know have that balance of humility and gratitude for who you are and um resting because that was my story i was going into the surgery and i knew on this date i'm going to be out i'm going to be sedated and everything that happens over the next four hours and then the ripples of that i can't control the world is going to still go on people are still going to do activism and beautiful things and fight for justice I had to call timeout and then I get back to it. So we all need that timeout. Hopefully it won't take you being in surgery, right?
0: <laughs> yes. Um, if you could foresee what the well done, my good and faithful servant would look like for your life. Cause obviously the work it's, it's never ending, right? What does a, a completed work look like for
1: you? I would like to say, you know, in the book I talk about that I used to identify with, I was this kind of Christian and that was my identity. And so people have seen my theological search, my, you know, my uh, deconstruction or whatever you want to call it. And they say, so what are you now? And I said, I don't really care to describe, you know, what I am. I just wanted the how to be important. Was I helpful? Was I kind? Uh, you know, did I bring more compassion into the world or less? Uh, So that's the work. I'm not sure when it's going to end. And uh, I thought, I want to be interrupted doing something beautiful with my life. So that's, that's Mm -hmm. it. That's the success.
0: Hey, well, first of all, I just want to say thank you for uh, just taking the time to speak into so many sensitive issues of identity. Issues when it comes to relationships and repairing those breaches that have Mm. happened, especially over the last few years. I feel like this conversation hopefully will help someone be able to be authentically themselves, but find a pathway Mm. to really bridge those gaps that have been broken. Is if, uh, I mean, obviously we've covered a lot in this conversation. Is there anything else that you feel like, man, if I, If there's anything I want people to know, I want them to know this. Do you have anything else on your heart that you want to share?
1: I always tell people that there's power in your story and there's resonance in your voice. You know, we're talking now and there's nothing extraordinary about me or my story that isn't true of everyone else. Everyone has a story that merits books and people to read about it. Um, So for me, it was about realizing the only reason I'm here is because I spoke the truest contents of my heart and those words found other people. And so whether they end up writing books or having a blog or whatever, the story should be about realizing the agency that you have in the world. And your circle of influence, you have incredible power to do something redemptive. And so just to do it, um, to, not, to not underestimate your capacity for a more empathetic planet.
0: Mm. With that, we thank you for your time, sir. Oh. And uh, we wish you the best thank you. on your release.
1: Thank All you, right. Mark. It was a joy to be with you. And thanks for the work that you're doing. Look forward to talk to you again. Yes, sir. All right. Peace to you.
0: Thanks so much for listening. It is such an honor to have you right here in the Convo Room. Conversations with mentors, moguls, and legends hosted by yours truly, Mark Allen Patterson. Look, I don't want you to miss a single episode. So can you do me a favor? Head over to ConvoRoom.com to subscribe and find all the information you need to stay connected. Until next time, remember, you're one conversation away from changing your life for the best. Have a great one.